welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. Again, I want to start by thanking all of you that are supporting the podcast via Patreon. It's hugely appreciated and really keeps the episodes flowing. So we've reached episode six of the Qualitative Research series, flying high above the different methodologies and occasionally landing to get a deeper sense of their philosophies, theories and methods. And today I'm excited to speak with not just one, but two phenomenologists to give us a really rich view of phenomenology and its application to qualitative research. Kathleen Galvin is a professor of nursing practice at the University of Brighton in the UK, and her work spans phenomenology, philosophy, qualitative research, the arts and humanities and health, and action research. Her current research program explores people's experiences of a range of health issues and using phenomenological orientated philosophy has developed a novel theoretical framework for caring practices. This includes contributions to new theoretical perspectives on well-being, suffering and humanising approaches to human services. Dr. Pidio Fuskowski is a senior lecturer in health sciences and physiotherapy teacher education at the University of Uvaskula in Finland. She teaches and conducts research in the intersecting areas of qualitative research, phenomenology and physiotherapy. Pidio is particularly interested in experiential phenomena and phenomenological contributions in regards to learning, teaching and assessment in physiotherapy, educational and healthcare contexts. Methodologically, her particular interest is applied Husserlian descriptive pre-transcendental phenomenology. Pidio is currently working on phenomenological research that attends to the lived experiences of peer learning and mentoring and practice-based assessment. And alongside Professor Kathleen Galvin and Dr. Kitty Suddick, who we mentioned in the episode, Pidio will shortly be co-editing a special edition in the International Journal of Qualitative Methods that draws upon and honours the foundational contribution of philosophical thinking to a range of diverse phenomenological research perspectives. So in this episode, we speak about phenomenology as both a philosophical theory, method, and also a qualitative research methodology. We talk about the father of phenomenology, Edmund Husserl, and distinguish between his epistemological project and the ontological approach offered by a student, Martin Heidegger, and Kathleen and Pidio share their views on the different respective phenomenological qualitative research approaches, namely hermeneutic and descriptive phenomenological research. We talk about the idea of the life world in relation to phenomenological research, and we talk about what makes phenomenological research phenomenological. We talk about how phenomenology, when used as a framework for qualitative research, informs the methods such as data generation, sampling and data analysis. And we talk about the concept and practice of bracketing. 
Finally, Kathleen and Pidio offer some helpful advice about both embarking on phenomenological research, but also incorporating phenomenology into our practice. And I've linked the key books and papers that we talk about in the episode in the show notes. So this was an absolute treat to witness two experienced interlocutors share their deep knowledge of phenomenology with such an experience. The conversation begins by digging quite deep into some of the rich philosophy of phenomenology, but surfaces again midway to locate these important ideas to the practice of qualitative research. So I bring you Professor Kathleen Galvin and Dr. Pidio Voskoski. Kate, Pidio, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Thank you. Happy to be here. So this is an eagerly anticipated episode of the Qualitative Research Series, and it's an episode I've been really looking forward to. I've, I've kind of tiptoed around phenomenology on different podcast episodes with clinicians and researchers, mostly related to, I suppose, pain and persistent pain. So it's great to be able to spend some time immersing one's toe <laughs> in the philosophy and, and as it relates to qualitative research. So thank you so much for, for joining me today. Thank you for having us. It's great to be here. So perhaps we could start by each of you just giving us a, a summary of your current academic background and your kind of journey into phenomenology. I'll, I'll start. Okay, so I'm a professor of nursing and my journey to phenomenology has really been guided by my interest in what the depths and details of what people go through in different conditions or situations or illnesses. And also within practice, how there are some big things that we are dealing with all of the time that aren't talked about very much that lend themselves very much to kind of phenomenological view. And that's what brought me along this road. So things like falling ill, you know, your life falling away, working contexts where death is sometimes very, very close in critical care or in, in other, other settings. Um, people being wrenched away from the lives that they had and, and building up a new life because of different conditions. So these, these things in practice as a nurse, um, I've always been very interested in from the beginning. And it's not very far from those to phenomenology, which hopefully by the end of our discussion, that will make a little bit more sense. I actually started out as a quantitative researcher because all the research training was quantitative when I started out. Um, and I became frustrated and by the limits of, you know, doing a big study and then a little, little, tiny, tiny splinter of, of, of what might be revealed from it. In, in some of these complex topics as well, messy world of practice, that led me to looking for something else. And I found qualitative research and, you know, have, have mm. worked in, in different approaches in qualitative research. But I, I kind of fell in love with phenomenology and that was my path to it. And, and now I'm firmly here in it. <laughs> I must say that the nursing profession has pretty much led the way in terms of developing qualitative research methods 
whether it's grounded theory or thematic analysis or phenomenology. It's curious that the nursing professions really had such a primary role in the dissemination and acceptance and the development of qualitative methodologies. Yeah, I, th- I think that's true. I think um, the practice demands methodologies. Uh, you know, as I can't remember the authors, but said that can reach the parts that other methods can't reach, and that has been natural. And and also some of the great doyens in phenomenology have also recognised the contribution that nursing has made in progressing qualitative research and phenomenology in in the field it it has Mm. as a discipline made a contribution so i think that's true and pitya yes so i'm coming into phenomenology from a slightly different disciplinary perspective by background i am a physiotherapist so and then i i later became a teacher in physiotherapy Currently, my position is uh, at University of Jyväskylä uh, in physiotherapy teacher education. And my my journey to phenomenology began with my doing my master's uh, thesis. But already that time, I was, uh, you know, working as a physiotherapy teacher. So my research interest was more in uh, on the pedagogical aspect, and and I was keen to to explore the the lived experiences of learning, and uh, and did that in the context of problem based learning physiotherapy education, and. Uh, I was that time I was combining uh, hermeneutics and phenomenology, but I, I don't think I did a very good job <laughs> that time. Uh, but 10 years later, I did my PhD and that was in education. Uh, I did it in two universities in, in Finland and in Australia. And I spent one year uh, in Australia to, to really immerse my, immersing myself to, to phenomenological texts and learning about phenomenology as a, as a philosophy and as a method, methodology. And that kind of had a big impact on my, my research motives and, and interests. And and uh, I also did my PhD. The the subject uh, from student learning had changed to to student assessment experiences, but I also uh, was more became more fascinated with the with the descriptive phenomenological stance uh, uh, underpinned by by Hustle's philosophy, and uh, yeah, that's kind of was uh, was a big turning point for myself and uh, and since then I have really been very very fascinated fascinated by by the descriptive stance and uh, during the time I did my PhD I, I I was hearing all the time that you can't do uh, you, you can't do reduction you can't do bracketing etc etc that kind of debate is still ongoing <laughs> but I, I felt really challenged but I uh, was able to do that so since then I have then supervised the numerous phenomenological studies related to people's lived experiences also in the context of of healthcare or in physiotherapy occupational therapy etc and i also have had the privilege to be able to do a collaboration with kate and and supervising supervising actually three uh, two students together 
in, in research, my, my work mostly relates to phenomenological research and on, on a variety of topics, both in the context of education and, and clinical context. But I do enjoy a lot uh, about uh, of supervising the postgraduate student researchers doing their masters and doing their doctoral mm. dissertations. And, and luckily, most of them have focused on, on phenomenology. So that really has been enjoyable. And it might be a good point just now for me to signpost the paper that you were both featured on, which was a paper led by, I think, your student, Pirio, or maybe it was yours as well, Kate, Kitty Sadik. Pirio's student? Yeah, yes. I'll just, I'll just go make a mental note for me to, to link her relatively recent paper on hermeneutic phenomenology and how she kind of operationalized the, the philosophy in her PhD a bit so for me, it was a really useful paper to to read and, and to begin to get my head around some of these some of these notions. I suppose the question is, where do we start? You know, where is a good entry point? And as Pidio and I have discussed, that the focus of the series is obviously in qualitative research methodologies and theories, but phenomenology is both a philosophy in its own right, but has been used to frame and to develop qualitative research methods. Yes, indeed. So I think if we start with the philosophy, given its breadth and its depth, and it's the big kind of names and movers and shakers within the philosophy over the years, where where would you both suggest a good place for us to start with where it started? I think Pierio and I would both say with the father of phenomenology, Edmund Husserl, wouldn't we, Pierio? Mm. Mm. And, you know, the work is well over 100 years old now. I think the crisis of the European sciences he published in 1916, but there were texts before that as well. And what he was really point well he gave us the life world if you like if i could start with the life world period maybe that this is the the analogy or the metaphor is like we are like the goldfish swimming in the water and the water is the life world the seamlessness of experiential happenings that we don't really notice uh, as we get on about our our business the pre-reflective world that is the ground for our phenomenological inquiry that is is the shared part of human existence as well, but that there are the life world is all the relations that we take for granted as humans. And so he he really gave us that as a foundation from which phenomenology has grown. And then he really pointed to, and I think this is the absolute still central idea in phenomenology, that how things appear to us, the phenomenon and the whatness of that thing or its quiddity. What makes a tree a tree? What makes anger anger? What makes loss? What makes it so? What are the essential features or the the whatness of that? So that's where it begins. And as it's moved through different disciplines as well, yes, we've talked about health, haven't we? But, you know, in, in many disciplines, psychology, education and so on, there have been different developments. But I, I think listeners to this podcast might, if they're interested in the history of phenomenology, 
might be interested in Spiegelberg's work where, where he's looked at the whole the whole movement. And then, of course, Husserl's student was uh, Martin Heidegger, who Husserl's project was an epistemological project about knowledge, and, and Martin Heidegger's project was an ontological project. But then the other scholars in the continental philosophy movement there are lots of continuities, even though they're very distinct, and there's discontinuities and debates as well. So Gadamer and Levinas and some of the females too, Edith Stein and others. Do you want to add, Pirio, a little bit around that? Yeah, I would probably want to highlight still that, you know, that one has to acknowledge that uh, the, the philosophical movement and, and the, the perspective that Hustle started was a philosophical endeavour. And uh, phenomenology is also a research methodology. And I think our focus today will be more on that side. But uh, because this creates a bit of a confusion because Hustle also presented a method, a phenomenological method, but his purpose was all the time to develop it for the purposes of phenomenological philosophy. And as, as Kate already mentioned, I think the key, key point uh, when talking about Hustle, we cannot talk about him without mentioning consciousness. <laughs> and uh, and, and uh, according to Hustle, we, we need to step back and, and examine all objects whatsoever in the world we might uh, we might experience as, as phenomena to consciousness and 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 thus that his philosophy seeks to to understand uh, anything at all that can be experienced through the consciousness. Uh, from the perspective of the conscious person undergoing the experience. And, and that, I think that is the, uh, the kind of the most important starting point to understand and realize at the beginning. And, and also what Kate was referring to, that uh, phenomenology is, is primarily interested in how rather than the, the what of objects. And, and Hustle's aim, that, that was to clarify how or in what way any possible object uh, presented itself as, as a given to consciousness. And, and, and this was always a, a descriptive project to Hustle. So how were people thinking about trees and anger and loss? So, so what was the, you know, I suppose the, I suppose Cartesian, you know, what was the, the response to what were they responding to? So people were always thinking about trees and anger and loss, but what was so different about this particular argument that Hustle and subsequently Heidegger had? We could talk a long time, but I think to not take for granted, it is to take a step back and and to look again. Um, I mean, Merleau-Ponty, another phenomenologist, said that phenomenology is to relook at the world I think you can't get better than that. It's to to take a step back, to go back to the matters and to look again because this, we live in this taken for granted seamlessness yeah. that is pre-theoretical before, before we even name it. And this is a way to look again. That's, that's the best way I can describe it. As Husserl said, to get back to the matters, but it is to take a step back and relook as to how something appears. And also I would add that to slow down the, the experience that we are going through to, to, to reflect it. And, and for example, when we see this tree or when we see a chair, I think that's one of, one of his uh, famous uh, 
examples that when we when we look at a chair, we we don't in our natural attitude, we don't in everyday life experience, we don't stop uh, questioning that, uh, that it really exists as it exists, or or uh, that there is a whole chair, but we are all actually only looking uh, one angle of the of the chair, but we still kind of experience it as a chair and and I think that is also the, the the crucial point that relates to the phenomenological method even when when applied to qualitative research that you you have to step back and slow down and and kind of keep your act of consciousness and the object of consciousness separately that you slow down and 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 think of what, what you are actually experiencing if you think that you are walking through a window that you see a, a human uh, a character in the window and you kind of uh, did see that character but you wasn't quite sure if that was a person or if it was a mannequin and then you step back and 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 look at it again and kind of stop and think about it uh, uh, more slowly and then you realize that yes actually it was a mannequin it wasn't a human being so in that kind of example, the, the, your consciousness has already grasped the meaning of the, the object that you experienced. And I think we're moving really quickly. What Pirio is describing is what is central in the methodology of phenomenology as a method is the phenomenological attitude. Mm. Yeah, is to, to move actively move from our natural attitude, which is our everyday way of getting on with the world unreflectively, and taking a step back and moving into the phenomenological attitude of really looking again mm. at what is appearing to us. And we're giving simple examples, but you can do this through the procedures with complex human experiences to try and delineate their central characteristics of what makes that experience that experience and what all its variations are. So in the history then, through different disciplines, some great scholars developed procedures building on these philosophical ideas that those of us in the practice disciplines have grasped onto as method. But there are philosophers all over the world doing phenomenological philosophy through phenomenological reflection, and that is possible. But in the practice disciplines, we have embraced various qualitative procedures and methodologies that are faithful to these philosophical ideas. And that, and that, that in a nutshell, is kind of the history. One of the key ones being Amadeo Giorgi in, in psychology, but there are, there are others. Hmm. And maybe it needs to be mentioned that uh, that as Hustle work was inspiring other philosophers uh, after him, uh, they kind of developed his key themes further. But while doing it, they did actually have slightly different aims and emphases in their work, and 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 then quite often deviated from from Hustle's original conception of phenomenology, and and that kind of created several versions of phenomenological philosophy. And that has also had an impact on, on that we actually nowadays have uh, different types of interpretations of the phenomenological method when uh, implemented into qualitative research. But still, I think we both, with Kate, we do need to discuss a bit about the differences, but also 
we do appreciate the commonalities that that all those methodologies and approaches and uh, in phenomenology are say, sharing. And so maybe we can, so we started with Husserl and then Heidegger and maybe just expand a bit on about those differences. So Kate, you said Husserl was concerned with epistemology and Heidegger was concerned with ontology. So what are the implications of those different positions or foci of phenomenology? I suppose we're mentioning it because the big debates, contentious debates, circle round and round this and 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 scholars coming into phenomenology, they're, you know, almost sometimes get divided into two camps, whether it's descriptive phenomenology following Husserl or hermeneutic phenomenology following Heidegger. And Pirio and I both agree that this is far too simplistic, that this division has been overemphasized and it's more complex than that. What our position would be is that what makes phenomenology, phenomenology are a few essential things that have to be in there when we're talking at methods level, which include the phenomenological attitude, reduction, intuition, reflection, rich description, attunement to the life world and, and so on. And they both are concerned with meanings and their discriminations. That's the key, I think, area. Absolutely. And a lot of heat and energy is used in these great debates between the descriptive and, and hermeneutic but what we would argue is that what we want to arrive at is a description of the general structure of a phenomenon or a fusion of horizons of the phenomenon between the, the researcher's interpretation and what's out there that are more important than these discontinuities. Because, of course, each scholar in continental philosophy movement went on their own path to prioritize and emphasize whatever they were interested in. Heidegger was interested in being, Merleau-Ponty interested in embodiment, Levinas interested in the face and the ethical ethical um, dimension. So naturally there are huge distinctions, but they all share some common root that we don't talk enough about the common root. We talk more about all the discontinuities. Yeah, and already as a starting point, as I was already referring to that in when you are going to apply, considering to apply phenomenology as a, as a research methodology to human science or human scientific purposes, uh, in both stances, in the in in the interpretive and and descriptive, uh, the meanings are considered, the established relations between the 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 act of consciousness and the object of consciousness. And and they are slightly differently named in both of philosophies of, for example, Husserl and Heidegger. But uh, it is still the meaning uh, relationship that they are interested in. And the method that Husserl presented is is slightly different from what is usually related to hermeneutic phenomenology and highlighting the kind of hermeneutic approach to uh, or ad- adoption of an hermeneutic phenomenological attitude, which is slightly, slightly different, but still it's it's the established relations between acts of consciousness and, and its objects, which are 
present to our our consciousness in different moments of the the experiential stream, and and then the method will be kind of operationalizing how it can be examined uh, and and when applied to qualitative research that we want to to examine the qualitative aspects of experiential objects and the phenomena of the of the life world as as Kate already mentioned so i think that is important to keep in mind that both stances uh, if we want to talk about descriptive and inter- interpretive stances claim their legitimation based on phenomenological philosophy of science so maybe at that point we just hang on to those different hermeneutic interpretive stance and just sit it aside the descriptive stance. And, and as a researcher or as a student or someone entering into this, this, this field, how do you know which one to take? What sorts of questions might be better suited for the different positions or approaches? And what's the sort of, and I'm referring to the the application of this these positions to qualitative research. What comes from these different studies or these these different framed qualitative studies, whether it's a hermeneutic or a, a descriptive phenomenological study? I think we might slightly think differently here, also with Kate, uh, and you know we we are happy to think differently. And, and but my kind of starting point would be that the difference in in the phenomenological stances uh, of descriptive and interpretive phenomenology mainly concerns the difference between the the univocal and multiple meanings and then the motive and interest of the researcher behind the two approaches. Uh, like in any research, the, the research interest and the research question should guide the choice of methodology and method and not vice versa. So that, for example, the, the motivation for me as a descriptive phenomenologist is to articulate the relationship of the variations of meanings into the sense of identity implied in them, or when when the interpretive researcher would be motivated to emphasize the variation and the diversity and the richness of the lived-through experiences under investigation. But they both might start with individual experiences, uh, individual uh, descriptions of experiences, and and they might both end up with slightly uh, similar results. But uh, to me, it's also that a use of slightly different terminology in describing the, for example, as a descriptive phenomenologist, the main result of the analysis would be the description of the structure of the phenomenon under investigation and and, uh, accounting for uh, the phenomenon based on precision of meanings and not the plausibility of meaning uh, like is kind of related to interpretation, which is more open to reinterpretation and the, the precision of meanings kind of associated with the fulfillment of demand linked with the descriptive stance would be my, my starting point. Uh, I don't know if, Kate, you want to hop in and... Yeah, I would agree with Pirio. And I think as a researcher starting out, Sometimes what we've both observed is that there perhaps there is an assumption that descriptive phenomenology is too hard to pursue because some of some things might not be able to be achieved compared to hermeneutic. And I think what we would both say is that 
descriptive phenomenology has got some very clear procedures and stages that can guide a novice in phenomenology in a very good way rigorously and look after the bit to make the phenomenological work phenomenological. Hermeneutic can do that as well, but there are more choices to be made that might be more difficult as a novice would be my advice on that. There is perhaps at first sight less structure, but I think structure is a good thing. And as Perio says, we're aiming to try and characterize, in both of them, we're trying to characterize the phenomenon. And it very much depends on what the phenomenon is that you're looking at that might guide you ultimately to make that decision. But what we wouldn't want researchers to do is make the decision based on ideas that you can't reach an essence or bracketing is too hard to do because there's plenty of studies where that's not the case. It needs to be a more sophisticated decision-making process based on the actual phenomenon or research question. Do you want to add to that, Perio? Yeah, that uh, also for related to the motive and the interest of the researcher that, for example, uh, let's say a healthcare uh, researcher who would be interested in uh, understanding a specific phenomenon, whatever that might be in the in the life world, for example, of the healthcare professional or their patient or a client or or the therapeutic encounters that they are both involved, whatever that might be in related to the healthcare practice. The motive of the of the researcher to choose the descriptive stance would be that one would acknowledge that I want to contribute to the phenomenological essential and eidetic knowledge of that phenomenon, which is slightly different from the purpose and motive of the interpretive stance. Would you agree with that, Kate? Yes, I would agree with that. Yeah. So I'm just trying to get a practical a sense of the practical differences between these two positions and how the researcher might think and whether there's any difference in how the research questions are developed or these sorts of interview questions which might appear on a on interview guide and or if there's any difference in other methods of analysis. So the the question proposed as such would not be that different if if I do remember correctly, for example, for Kitty that uh there was something like how is being on acute stroke unit meaningfully lived yeah. by stroke survivors and uh health professionals, was it something like that? Yeah. And that was an kind of more hermeneutic and interpretive stance that she she applied in her research. While, for example, if I think back to my own PhD study that uh, I was looking at how assessment related to clinical placement was present to physiotherapy students uh, as a lived-through meaningful experience. So in that sense, I think I probably highlighted more, in not in the question, but uh, that that was probably the main main question, but I was looking at it from an educational phenomenological perspective and highlighted that both phenomenological attitudes and 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 disciplinary attitudes need to be adopted. 
so that what I'm looking at, uh, I'm probably not that open to whatever might emerge from the, the data. But I was I was guided by my my research motive and interest to look at the, even though I didn't get rid of any of the data, I was. Uh, immersed with all the data, analyzed all the data, but uh, I was looking for the educational significance they were living through because my research interest was from the to look at the educational significance of the assessment experiences. So in that sense, I think the disciplinary approach was not highlighted in a similar sense in, in Kitty's work. Yeah, and... Um... Another example, looking at what do we, the meaning of mobility for older people living in in a rural setting. All of the literature uh, emphasizes transport and and people, you know, older people needing to move around and being isolated because they can't move around in rural area. So a descriptive phenomenological study of the meaning of mobility, asking older people about their mobility experiences in all its variations and then the commonalities in that as well, through a descriptive approach, allowed Les Todras and I to describe what mobility is in that context. And through the reduction in phenomenological attitude, what we were able to describe was how you couldn't understand mobility without understanding the meaning of wanting to reside or be in a place or stay in a place. And that transport was only a little part of this huge big picture about what mobility was to older people, including what mobility meant to older people who lived in one room of their house, all the way through to older people at the other end of the spectrum who could travel to wherever they wanted. So that lent itself to a descriptive we wanted to have a descriptive approach because of the research question to try and describe what mobility was in that context. Whereas Kitty is, you know, the experience of being a stroke survivor on the stroke unit is a much bigger kind of, uh, uh, it's not, not a bigger question, but uh, you can see the difference. Can you see the difference between Perio's study with the educational emphasis in the question, the meaning of mobility and what it is like as a stroke survivor in a stroke unit? That kind of will point you to the methodology as well. But what I would say to novice researchers is you do need some stabilizers like on the on a bicycle or some training wheels and a life world approach or a procedural approach as given by Georgie or, or some of the others is very helpful place to begin just on a, on a pragmatic kind of practical step. Mm -hmm. So when you, when you were asking also the end result, so as the, I, I was describing the structure of the lived through educationally meaningful experience in student assessment, uh, I also described, uh, when describing the structure, uh, the, the most invariant key meanings that constitute or form uh, that comprise the structure. So after that, because that is kind of, you know, the structure was a bit of like one paragraph. So all the huge amount of data was reduced in into that piece of text. So... 
obviously after that you you start the discussion as a descriptivist with your with your uh, structure and the key invariant meanings and you want to look more closely the empirical variations of that unifying structure so then you kind of start in the discussion chapter the discussion about these ramifications with your own data and and uh, also uh, because the interest was the educational uh, disciplinary interest I, w- i was also looking at the implications of the empirical variation as uh, as uh, the variation in the educational meaning of those So that is kind of one of the big differences as well that if, because I can be called a purist in that sense, that I I want you to stick with my my thesis, the the pure descriptive phenomenological stance from the very beginning until the end. I never discussed with my findings in in a similar sense that one would discuss uh, as an interpretivist with the, the, the findings. So I didn't go beyond the data. So that is kind of when you want to keep with your Husserlian approach from the very beginning until the end. So uh, you could, it's still, I don't I don't think as a phenomenologist that it would be wrong to, to do an existential turn or, or uh, interpretation after describing the, the results as a descriptive phenomenologist, but I I just wasn't, my motivation and interest was not to do that. So... And also, it was a bit of a test, to be honest. That can is my PhD thesis a dissertation going to be accepted as such? And it was in two countries. <laughs> so <laughs> you can do that. <laughs> Just to to add to Piro's example, there's other examples that I can think of um, that also guided very strongly um, in this way, and that's by a Swedish scholar, Karen Dahlberg, and Life World research, reflective life world research. And some of those papers, first of all, delineate the structure of the phenomenon, as Perios described in, in a very short paragraph, but then unfold all the variations to help the reader make sense of that invariant part. So that's the, the whole and the parts in dialogue with one another. So there, Karen Dahlberg and some of her researchers have done a paper on the meaning of loneliness with an essential description of what loneliness is and then the variations mm. from from the data that they had. Another one is about the experience of being diagnosed with diabetes and there is a essential Um, summary of the invariant features of that and then the variations through the unfolded, the constituents of, of what makes up that from the, from the data. And these are really useful examples, I think, to look at when you're, you're beginning because mm-hmm. that's the outcome that you want at the end to understand what makes loneliness loneliness and how is it manifest through all the different variations in this sample. And there may be other variations that we can imagine beyond that. But what is what is mobility in this context? The essential invariant properties or characteristics of it. And where are all the variations in, in the sample that try explain that or, or relate to it? So that, that's the outcome we want at the end. And I think 
That is what makes phenomenology very distinctive from other qualitative forms of analysis, because the purpose is to apprehend the phenomenon and show it. And and hermeneutic phenomenologists also try and show the phenomenon, but in a different, slightly different way, as Perios described. Mm. It would already kind of relate to the theory of meaning that would be implied to that there is a difference, slight difference in the theory of meaning if if underpinned by Husserlian approach or Heideggerian approach. But that that would take, I think, a little bit too much time to go into the details. But that is good to acknowledge that you, if you want to be systematic from the, you know, from the theoretical philosophical underpinnings of the of the approach until the very end of how you are uh, discussing and and presenting the the findings of the study that you you keep every in at, during every step that Kate was referring to that you you need to maintain the same adopted either descriptive phenomenological or or more hermeneutic phenomenological attitude and and otherwise it gets a bit muddled and we do see a lot of examples uh, of qualitative studies that they do claim to be phenomenological which is also one because of a debate at what makes a study phenomenological study but we do see that you know examples that they do claim a, a phenomenological uh, status but they actually what they have done they might have just uh, not just i don't i don't mean to undermine but they have collected interview data uh, maybe perhaps with an open in depth methodological way and then done for example thematic analysis and they claim this was a phenomenological study when it necessarily wasn't <laughs> mm. well now you've you've prompted me to ask you ask what makes a phenomenological study because you could like you said is to collect some interview data and approach that data you know in the mind of a of a looking at life world meaning I mean you could you could borrow on some of these notions and I suppose is it the looseness or the tightness or how wedded or welded you are to some of these ideas because when because you can do a TA study which is kind of framed or situated within this philosophy, but when a bit like we were saying, what makes anger, anger, why is an anger loneliness? And when does it become lonely? You know, when is, where is that point where we suddenly say, oh yeah, yeah, there we go. There's it's, it's, it meets that category of a phenomenological study. I, I, I think it starts with what Kate was already referring to that, you know, you need to define the phenomenon of interest in phenomenological terms. And then also that, you know, you have to adopt the phenomenological attitude in one way or, or another, and you have to make that explicit. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think a point in this is that the interview data or whichever way you collect the data, but it's mostly interview. The interview data is not the phenomenon itself. That's the distinction. The interview data is the access or the portal to the phenomenon. So just to summarize what's in your interviews gives us an idea of what people think and feel and and, and their opinion. But that is not the phenomenon. The phenomenologist is trying to go further in delineating the meaning of that and the the boundaries of that phenomenon, what makes that phenomenon that phenomenon, and uses the interview 
and the data collection as a means to access the phenomenon. And I think that's an important distinction. And that's why just to ask people about their ideas about things and to summarize it and do a thematic analysis is very useful. It can give us insight, but that doesn't make it phenomenology. What makes it phenomenology is understanding what the phenomenon's boundaries are, what its characteristics are, what its invariant characteristics are, and then the variations. And as a, as a descriptive hu- uh, researcher in human science, you would need to decide also that, you know, what would be your your claim for being phenomenological? And that would start with the most basic reduction in the sense of the, the epochy and the bracketing and, and considering the phenomenon as a presence or a given to consciousness and, and not making any existential claims or epistemological claims that it exists as it was experienced or as a presence to consciousness. That is not an important or interesting question for a phenomenologist. And then you would decide that, you know, how far you would go in your reduction because Hustle actually describes several kind of layers or levels of reduction. And if you would end up with the transcendental level of reduction, you would actually do a philosophical investigation and the scientific level of uh, of of uh, reduction is not to transcend the, the the human consciousness and and the life world from that experience so that is kind of what makes the study also in a way context limited study in a that way that we embrace it and we acknowledge it and 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 the the transferability of the eidetic level generalizations would be still context specific and the the aim would not be to aim at, at a universal level of generalizations of the phenomena so so we've mentioned bracketing or you've mentioned bracketing a couple of times and I, I just I remember when I was writing a piece of work for my PhD and I think I put somewhere in, in my thesis or, or some piece of work related to it I mentioned bracketing and I took a social constructionist grounded theory perspective and I remember my supervisor Nikki Petty who was a physiotherapist but also a grounded theorist one of her comments one of her track changes was bracketing exclamation mark question mark wash your mouth out exclamation mark so it's clear that it causes quite a bit of contention across the qualitative methodologies, but also as a pretty prickly, thorny issue within phenomenology itself. So I wonder if we can maybe briefly explain what it is and just introduce it as a as a method or a, or a concept and why it's so contentious. Yeah, I, I would really like Kate to step in, but I, I would just start that up because she can explain it. It's so beautifully about <laughs> uh, bracketing or epoche in in Hustle's terms and reduction are kind of terms for the the reflective move that is required, needed for in order to attain the the stance of a philosophical thinking or phenomenological philosophical thinking, which refers to the phenomenological attitude. And that is one of the, I think, the key philosophical assumptions that is required for a study to for having this phenomenological claim, because it also does relate to the attitude that we we, we take towards the, the phenomenon as a phenomenon to consciousness as such. But uh, Kate, you can explain it so beautifully. <laughs> sure. 
Sure. And Oliver's quite right. It causes so much contention. And, you know, you see it in, in papers where I don't, there is a belief perhaps that bracketing cannot be achieved. So therefore, we're not going to even attempt it. And we're going to go straight to hermeneutic approach, which is a sort of a misunderstanding on some level of what bracketing means. It is about suspending judgment, but it's about this active shift from the natural attitude, and that is our unreflective way of going about in the world and taking things for granted, to the phenomenological attitude of taking a step back and re-looking at again and not taking anything for granted. So the best example I can give of this is, you know, when you're a trained professional, you start to see things through your disciplinary theoretical perspectives. Or if you're a sociologist, you see it through a particular theoretical perspective. And the phenomenological attitude is asking you to set all of that aside and start again as if it's the first time you've seen it in a way to suspend your judgment. What I think Karen Dahlberg is very helpful here because she uses the term bridling. And if you imagine, and Karen Dahlberg's ride sources, you know, this is about um, holding back or controlling, maybe that's not the right word, trying to temper the natural impetus to go beyond the data with an interpretation when you're looking at it, rather than staying with the data just as it is in its non taken for granted way and to see something there that would have been obscured by an abstract something coming over the top of it or a disciplinary perspective or just just an unconscious assumption you might have that you're not aware of so Karen Dahlberg's notion of bridling is to always be open and at the same time, this slowing down and this tempering. And, and where, where students working with me have learned about this is in doing it in their first attempt at analysis, they begin to realize that they're just summarizing from their own perspective that they've been trained in and, and how they, in the everyday, think about things from their disciplinary perspective. And then by taking a step back and starting again, then they can often see how they weren't in the phenomenological attitude. But James Morley, who's written um, a lot in phenomenology, he would say that the most natural phenomenologists who are in the phenomenological attitude are children who are looking at things for the first time in wonder. And that is what bracketing requires in, in a pragmatic way. Yeah, but it, it's it, what is often the, uh, kind of misunderstood that it means that you have to forget or make your your mind empty of uh, pre-assumptions. Pre that it doesn't mean that you have to be aware of those. You have to be really critically uh, aware of your own pre-assumptions and, and and being careful not to bring in those assumptions to your uh, collection of data and analysis of data. And I think in that sense, the Hustle's imagine, uh, method of free imaginative variation makes it even more clearer that you know you you would put aside and bracket all 
the foreknowledge about the phenomenon. And then with the help of the method of imaginative variation based on specific conscious acts, which, uh, you know, also would be too long story to tell, but they are the, the signifying, fulfilling and identifying acts of consciousness where you would test you know, when you have grasped the meaning of the phenomenon that you are after. And with the help of that method of free imaginative variation, you would vary the, those invariant meanings until you experience the fulfillment of the emptily positive signifying, uh, signified meaning of, of the object that you are exploring. It is hard work in in that sense that, you know, I do agree that, and I can understand that people might give up, you know, doing it as rigorously as, as Hustle means it with complex phenomena, because it is hard work. And, and, and I'm really honest to say that, that when I was exploring my own data, I, I did have 16 participants, which is quite a lot for a descriptive phenomenological study, but it took over a year. To, to finish uh, the analysis. So that was why it was so so hard work. It is, it is essentially reflective, but, you know, as we said at the beginning, there are procedures that we can use to guide us um, in this process that really help, uh, Perio will add. But you, first of all, are reading your data for sense of the whole, um, what, you know, a sense of the whole thing and what's in here. And then you are noticing and marking out each time the meaning changes in, in what people have shared with you. And then you, by staying very closely to each of those meaning units, we sometimes call them, you reflect on those and try and translate them into translate them into a more general language but staying really close to their meaning and then those transferred meaning units then you begin to cluster them and this procedure is very strenuous and it's highly reflective but it will look after this is why I like Georgie so much it will look after all these complexities that Perio has talked about. And at the same time, you stay attuned to your pre-understanding. And, and, and all of the students that, that work with Perio and I, we ask them to write about their pre-understanding before their analysis. What do they understand by all of these issues at the moment and what they've learned from the literature and what their assumptions are? What do they understand of it? And then to try and be conscious and attuned to how that is at play in this process. And that's that's what we have to do. And that's, you know, there are some, there are some continuities with grounded theory here, Oliver. You know, you mentioned grounded theory. You know, the, the reflexivity, the, you, you don't go into a grounded theory study with an empty head, but you go in there aware of, you know the limits of what's already been done, and so 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 it's not it's not this mysterious, difficult to apprehend thing that is made out in in it is difficult. I, I shouldn't say that, but it's it's made very complex and 
maybe unreachable in in the literature and and there are a body of researchers who who don't believe that it's relevant useful or even achievable but as you said the argument is not that there is no researcher there uh, there cannot be any research without a researcher there with all their consciousness but it is that the researcher is bridling their pre-understanding and is trying to be attuned to their taken for granted and trying to look fresh and openly at what they can see in an open and fresh way using these procedures. That, in a nutshell, I think, is what we're trying to achieve. And I would say also that one good uh, tip was, would also be that you would start with, you know, one transcription and you would go with it until the very end of, of uh, describing the structure and also trying to uh, describe the, the most invariant meanings of that structure. And then when you start with the second one, you need to be able to, you know, give up what you have just done. And that is a good kind of example of that, that, you know, I, I'm still aware what I was doing and I need to be aware, but I'm not bringing it in to this analysis where I start fresh again. And uh, and and then I would go to the what Kate was describing and uh, that you would delineate the meaning units and then transform the meaning units. You need to do that for every transcription uh, first before you are entering to the last stage of, of describing the structure. So you wouldn't do that, uh, you know, with the rest of the transcripts, but I would do with the first just to test uh, and, and become more aware of, you know, what are my pre-assumptions and expectations? Because usually the student also will notice that, uh, you know, what I ended up at the end is far from what I what, what I did with the first one, which was more embedded with my own pre-assumptions and preconceptions of what I'm expecting to see. And, and maybe just some, I suppose some practical issues about the sort of data that's generated in a phenomenological study, whether and compare it to a thematic analysis or grounded theory. So grounded theory is pretty intent on looking at social processes and those social interactions and kind of systems. And so there are questions in the interview are quite dynamic. You're looking at kind of movement and and relationships and social interaction. What would be what would an interview transcript look like or some interview questions? Would it look like in either hermeneutic or the descriptive phenomenological approach? Yeah, when I would start my my data collection, I would only have, uh, you know, one or two main questions. And if, if you think about the, the assessment experience, I would ask them to describe the, their experience of assessment related to the, you know, the work placement that they have just finished. Uh, and and that would be make it more concrete, but I would also ask them to describe the experience in much detail as possible. And I would allow them to start whatever they would start. I would explain them at the beginning that it's it's the purpose that you are, you know, speaking and I'm listening. And, and then, you know, I would follow up with the questions, whatever they are referring to, what they, they were, you just mentioned that it was cruciating. Can you can you explore that a bit further? What do you mean? What did you mean by that? And then kind of in that way, uh, ask them to describe 
you know, uh, deeper and deeper in that in that experience. And the second main question would be to describe one concrete situation of assessment that they have in mind that was significant uh, and meaningful for them. And uh, again, I, I would uh, do the same procedures, uh, follow-up uh, questions. Uh, pretty much in a similar sense that Steiner Quale, I don't know how to pronounce it, uh, uh, is doing uh, and uh, in the classic research interview book. But Doing interviews, it was called. Yeah, something like that. That, that. that would be kind of the procedure for the descriptives. They would only have one or two questions, one of the more kind of the the overall life world experience, but still related to your research interest, the assessment experience. But the second one would be a more concrete uh, asking uh, then to describe a situation and, and what was going on in that situation. But still you would, you know, you would have your follow-up and probing questions, but not having your themes or, you know, thought beforehand that what would they say. You would completely openly follow up what they are saying. You are, you have no predefined questions other than these two. Yeah, the, in, the interview is like a clean slate. You just want to ask what was that like or, you know, what was it like to be there in that situation or as in Perios, what was, you know, the assessment like? And then they will tell you about that and you ask them, can you tell me, give me more examples of that or can you describe that in greater detail? And that's how it goes. We don't have any predefined areas to cover except what was it like or, you know, how did you experience that? Sometimes we might occasionally in an interview be guided by some fundamentals of the life world. So, for example, in the mobility study, which was a descriptive study, we did ask older people about places that um, they, you know, from a spatial perspective, we thought about the spatial perspective and we, we thought about the interpersonal perspective. Uh, where we asked them for examples that were to do with literally moving around and we asked them for examples of being connected with people and so on to try and get examples of the mobility. So sometimes we can we can do that, but it's mostly just the two questions. And, and just while we're talking about interviewing, it's quite good practice sometimes to think about your sample in terms of interviews rather than people. You could interview three people four times, <laughs> or you'd interview five people two times. You could interview 10 people one time, but you're really trying to get more and more depth. And, you know, a good example of this is um, in a book called um, Five Ways of Doing Qualitative Analysis by Fred Wirtz. There's a chapter on all of the qualitative analyses and the, the one on phenomenology is the experience of trauma through being given bad news, very bad news. And the interview and its analysis is all about the depth of receiving the news that the diagnosis is terminal and how that has stopped the person in their tracks and all the ways it stopped them in their tracks and what that was like. And to illuminate the phenomenon of trauma, one dimension of the phenomenon of trauma. I think it's a really good example where the interview is just about that bit, but in a great deal of 
in-depth description of what that was like for the person receiving the bad news. Yeah, I'll, I'll try and find it and link it. But I, I would like to highlight that uh, uh, such concepts as saturation or verification don't belong into a phenomenological study, which is quite often... Well, probably not in any qualitative qualitative study. Yeah. Sometimes the peer yeah. reviewer try to ask. Yeah. Yes, we should say, shouldn't we, Piro, as well, that we're not for member checking as well and some of the methods and procedures to check out data in other qualitative methods don't apply because it is the interpretation, the, the phenomenon, uh, it's related to what I said earlier, the interviews themselves are not the phenomenon. The interviews are the access to the phenomenon and it is the researcher who is describing the phenomenon through the evidence in the interviews. And to take it back to check out with participants isn't a, a, a isn't a fit it's not a correspondence theory of truth it's you know there isn't any any verification isn't relevant there it's where the um, credibility of the uh, outcome comes with is if if people who then read that phenomenon or hear about it if it's read to them recognize it resonate with it are moved by it that it is faithful then that's the credibility at the end we don't um sure you can ask participants if their transcript is correct but once it moves into analysis it's um there isn't any point in that and the, the much more important criterion for a phenomenological data is that it has to be rich so the richness of the data if the data is pregnant with meanings, I think that is the term that Georgie is using. I think it's very that is a good term that it's it's you know that if you would because people often ask that you know how many interviewees you need for a descriptive phenomenologist, one experience would be enough. But Georgie is is uh, recommending that you know have at least three to be able to validate your essential st description of essential structure uh, with the data. So the, you validate your your findings with the data. That makes it slightly different from many other qualitative approaches, and that is sometimes quite hard to explain to students or the reviewers. <laughs> and are you moving between? data collection interviews and data analysis. So this iterative process, for example, in grounded theory or, or TA, where your your subsequent analysis, rather your subsequent data collection, your interviews informed by your preceding analysis. So you've done an interview, done some analysis, have some useful insights, change some questions, might, you know, might change the focus of the, the following interview. So is there this this movement between or is it all the interviews analysis at the end? That wouldn't apply to phenomenological data collection. You could do your 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 one data, collect your one interview and then analyze it and then continue. But usually, you know, it's easier to start 
with the whole when you you know you start reading your transcripts first uh, several times and while listening to the recordings as well which is also uh, you know important even though you are you have collected the data yourself you still start to uh, already see more what was actually in the data that you first thought that that was pretty superficial I don't think if that will be rich data pregnant with meanings but actually you might be surprised why you listen and read read through it several times. So I personally prefer that you you collect the, all the data and then begin your analysis. But as said earlier, that you need to do the practice interviews and you know do the analysis with, for example, one transcript, so that you familiarize yourself with the steps of the method. So in that sense, you are you know what to expect and what happens next because otherwise you are in a bit of stage getting confused what is what is going to happen next i would also recommend to people to if possible to to do some kind of phenomenological workshop or summer school or something that you could would be able to practice with uh, you know small pieces of data if if we were repeating the interviews it would be to gather more and more examples more and more descriptions that people can share with us and and some studies do do repeat it but it's different to a grounded theory process where you are kind of shaping your theory and testing it a little bit if 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 I could say that um through this kind of iterative process it's not like that it's more just you know it's two centimeters wide but a mile deep and you want to go deeper 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 but still keeping the two centimeters wide only if that can if that metaphor works um you don't want to expand out beyond you know where what you the discipline that you've set so but the further interviews would be to um deepen it more and more and more and 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 then there are other things you can do after you've looked after the scientific concern uh, as Perio has has talked about when you end up with the description the general structure of the phenomenon or you've described its um essential features or characteristics and in in the meaning its meanings in in a meaning emphasis then after that stage, you can then, you, you could take an existential turn and start to think about what that means existentially. You could begin to look at relevant, say, if you look at something arose about embodiment, you might want to deepen that by using some philosophical ideas about embodiment. After that part, after all the analysis has been done, um, in the disciplined way, then you are free to add uh, to to do something else afterwards if you wanted. Yeah. Okay. So you wouldn't you wouldn't you for example if embodiment you know strikes you after interview four or something after once the end of your day's collection you wouldn't you wouldn't then think hmm that's an interesting concept it re- it it has resonance with my data I'm going to do some additional interviews and explore this concept in relation to my participants you wouldn't do that. No, but you could look at, for example, some ideas that Merleau-Ponty has written about embodiment and have a dialogue with what you've got with what is there. 
you could you could do that. There are researchers doing that kind of thing, but that's not a requirement. It's just to say that there is the the scientific concern of, of being faithful to the phenomenon must come first. And and that's the same for hermeneutic. You know, you have to be faithful to the phenomenon, whatever kind of phenomenology we're we're doing. And then after that part is complete, then you know, you can start to think about how how you might share that with the world and, and it might not be through for the academic world, it might be through the description that you've arrived at, but then for working with service users, you might think of another way of sharing it by maybe creating a short animated film about the key ideas that emerged, or I'm interested in how poetry can hold deep meaning beyond words. You know, you can enrich things, but um, but after you've looked after this first part, which is being faithful to the phenomenon through the processes of really being in the phenomenological attitude and staying very close to the data and the meaning. Mm -hmm. I I have one example of uh, a master's student in University of Brighton actually uh, did her work. Uh, She interviewed three participants, uh, or was it four? Three or four, anyway, uh, on on their experience of anal incontinence after having a a child. And uh, that was really powerful, really sensitive topic, and, and really powerful data. And I really would have wanted to see her doing, expanding the research to a PhD study. But I, I left from University of Brighton and I, I don't know what is the situation at the moment, but she ended up after the descriptive analysis to 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 write a poem. Uh, and I, I think she, she was, because doing a master's is different when you do your PhD, you have more time to spend and the time is more limited doing your master's, but she did a really good job. Uh, and and to be able to see that combination uh, would have been lovely in with the sensitive topic as such. I think the, the somehow the poem illuminated more aspects of that uh, structure and its invariant meanings in, in a very powerful, powerful manner. I'm, I'm conscious of time. It's, it's dinner time in Chichester and if it's if you're anything like me, video, it's bedtime in Finland. Well, it's it's 9.30, yeah. That's <laughs> uh, by bedtime. I wondered if there was anything else that you both want to, to add or any anything we haven't spoken about that you wanted to, to speak about. Any You've given some really helpful kind of tips and, and advice for, for those wanting to pursue phenomenology or, or perhaps uh, looking to find out more. Is there anything else you, you think is worth saying? I don't know. I, I'm just thinking about the potential of phenomenology, what it could give for for healthcare professionals and the healthcare practices that are not just for the researchers, but as an attitude for a practitioner, clinician. I think that in that sense, I would really like and love people to to get interest, become interested in in phenomenology and 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 and. For example, all that uh, expectation for patient-centered practice and and you know uh, the way how, how phenomenology highlights the first-person approach to lived experiences and and gives credit right, as as the as the base of scientific knowledge as well very, in a very different way than all that uh, quantifying 
outcome-oriented quantitative approach does. I'm not undermining that, but it's it's very different. It's it's so powerful. So I, I think that would be just that how to get people interested in phenomenology. I don't know. <laughs> Hopefully this podcast will do it. Yeah. And I, I think just to build on that, you know, phenomenological findings when well done, those descriptions are so powerful. They could be enough to suggest directions to change practice or to enhance practice or to continue practice right there because they are so powerful when it's done well. And they can also help health professionals get back in touch with why they're doing what they do anyway in, in, in this very instrumental world that we have to live in and work in and cope with it can bring us right back to the heart of the matters if if you like and and there's something very interesting in the literature as well in in the phenomenological studies literature that cuts across a lot of studies and that is that you know when you you talk to people who are going through things that are very challenging they know that the health professional can't change it or do anything about it but they would like to the health professional to be able to acknowledge the depth and detail of what it is like what it is like to live with cardiac failure and you know get up mm. each day and 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 face the future a lot of the studies point to how the participants will describe how they felt their the health professionals working with them couldn't connect with them there that they could connect with them in in the professional health pathway but not at that level and I think there's something important there that could be lost mm. and phenomenology can help us stay close to that. Yeah one thing still that I also was thinking that uh, what we just talked about practicing uh, the, the requirement to to suspend the, the pre-understandings etc that for example I think it highlights the need for the professionals as well to really as I think Kate was all, also referring to that are uh, to critically reflect their own pre-assumptions and ex- expectations and when they encounter people with different conditions and and step back and be open. Kate, Pirio, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having us. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs and check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.